That's on page 10. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, right at the beginning there, Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. If you know anything about uh, Manila in the Philippines, then you might be aware of the dump towns there. Living in the uh, garbage dumps that are outside the city are tens of thousands of people. They've built shacks out of what other people have thrown away. They send their children out um, day by day to, to scrounge for food from what other people have thrown out. You know, people have been born in those dumps. Um, they've grown up there. People have raised their families there. Some of them have died there, in some cases, having never gone anywhere else, have never seen anything else. It's uh, astonishing. Well, you may also know that there are Americans who live in those garbage dumps. Christian missionaries who've left the comforts of America to journey and go and communicate the love of Jesus to people who otherwise might not have a chance to hear it. That is maybe even more astonishing. But none of that is as astonishing as the journey all the way down from heaven to earth. The journey we remember during Advent as we look forward to Christmas. The journey that the Son of God came on as he embarked on God's mission from heaven to earth to, to live among us, to uh, let us know that God loves us, to secure a way for God um, to be able to come to us, to, to, to transform our metaphorical garbage dumps into pleasant parks and gardens. We're thinking about, during Advent, we're thinking about God's heart, um, a heart which moved God to leave it all behind to come down to this world. You know, I heard a talk uh, recently by Gary Haugen, who's the, fa uh, the founder of the Christian organization um, International Justice Mission. It's an organization um, devoted to using um, the power of, of law and legal means to come to the aid of those who have been enslaved around the world, who have been trafficked, who have been forced into prostitution, children, um, who have been imprisoned without a fair trial, people like that in need of justice. And, and in his talk, Haugen asked, are you and Jesus interested in the same things? Are you and Jesus interested in the same things? What are you most enthused about? What is Jesus most passionate about? Well, Scripture is clear on that. Jesus is absolutely passionate about the redemption and the transformation of this world. God is passionate about seeing people reconciled to himself, seeing people loved and healed and redeemed and forgiven. That's why he took that astonishing journey down, all the way down. And we want this Advent to catch God's passion. We, we, we want to see our interests aligned with Jesus' interests. And that's what we're praying about as we take time during the Fridays of Advent, either individually or together, to, to be praying as a church. And, and to help us get and catch God's heart, God's passion, we're working our way through some highlights of the story of Abraham 
this Advent season. And so today we pick up the story in Genesis 15. By this time, Abraham is committed to God's heart, to God's passion. He's committed to God's um, mission of love to the world, God's salvation plan that God was even then working out in the world. God had called Abraham out of his pagan life to a new journey of faith, to be used by God. God has, by this point, um, promised to bless Abraham and also to make Abraham a blessing. So much so that, that God has assured Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through him. And Abraham has followed God. He's left his old life and his extended family in Haran, and he's, he's followed God to, um, to the land of Canaan, where he now resides as a foreigner. Last week and the week before, we looked at all this in Genesis 12, and, and today we're in Genesis 15, but in between, a lot of important things have happened in the life of Abraham. And so to set up today's story, let me bring you up to speed. No sooner had Abraham arrived in the land that God had promised to take him to than there was a famine in the land. Nice welcome party. And Abraham had to promptly leave the land. He had to flee down to Egypt where he could find food. There his wife Sarah is taken captive um, by uh, Pharaoh or taken from him um, by Pharaoh to be Pharaoh's wife, and it's only through a divine intervention that Abraham gets Sarah back. The next story we have in Genesis 13 tells us that sometime later, once Abraham got back to Canaan, a quarrel breaks out between Abraham's household and Lot's household. Lot is uh, Abraham's orphaned nephew who um, Abraham took in and sort of adopted to take care of. And now Lot is grown up, and both he and Abraham are prospering to the extent that there isn't enough pasture land for both of their flocks. And Abraham solves this quarrel by being lavishly generous. Although God has given Abraham the land, um, and as Lot's senior, Abraham has the right to the best of it, particularly in that culture, but yet Abraham offers Lot the pick of the land, first pick. Lot can choose whatever, he want, whatever land he wants, and, and Abraham will settle for what's left. Abraham holds God's blessings loosely. He knows he needs to be a blessing. blessing. So he's a blessing to Lot, and Lot greedily and foolishly chooses the best land, the land around Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a land which has great promise from a materialistic point of view, but it's a land fraught with spiritual dangers. And many of us face that same choice too, between God's great mission, God's cause on the one hand, which calls for faith, which calls for spiritual vigilance, and on the other hand, promises of, of material success, which often come along with spiritual dangers and distractions. Well, in Genesis 14, Lot has moved to the land that he chose, and, and he's pitched his tent near the city of Sodom, and that's where his problems begin. He gets caught in the middle of a political squabble between the kings of the area around Sodom and Gomorrah and, and some other more powerful eastern kings. And to make a long story short, these powerful eastern kings come and they attack the kings where Lot lives, and they devastate the land, and they carry off Lot and his family with the spoils of war. Lot is innocent in the matter, but he learns the hard way that if you hang out with the wrong kinds of people, you can get mixed up in their problems. 
Well, Abraham gets word of, of his nephew's fate, and, and he marshals some troops, and he goes after those powerful eastern kings. Even though Lot has been ungrateful toward Abraham and has made some bad, bad choices, Abraham doesn't just say, well, Lot made his bed, let him lie in it. No, like his God, Abraham remains faithful and gracious toward, toward Lot, even though Lot has been ungracious toward Abraham. So Abraham goes to war. He risks um, himself. He risks his household. And against great odds, Abraham actually defeats these powerful eastern kings and rescues Lot. And in the process, Abraham gains possession of, of all the loot that um, these eastern kings had taken when they conquered the area of Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot lived. And um, when Abraham returns, Lot and his family back to the area of Sodom, Abraham is met by two of the kings of that area. One is um, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and one is the king of Sodom. We don't know his name. Melchizedek warmly welcomes Abraham back. He brings him a meal to celebrate, and he, he recognizes God's hand was with Abraham. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham. He, he makes a treaty with him. And in return, Abraham blesses Melchizedek and gives him a tithe of a tenth of all the plunder. But the king of Sodom is rude to Abraham. He brings no gift, no, not even any food to celebrate. He just shows up empty-handed. And then the king of Sodom presumptuously demands that Abraham return to him the slaves and the captives, which Abraham had just acquired through the spoils of war. And then as an even bigger slap in the face, the king of Sodom tells Abraham, but you can keep the goods. Now, to get a grasp of what's going on here, think of a boxing match. Imagine that, that the reigning heavyweight champion of the world has just been defeated by an underdog. The underdog wins the title belt. And, and after the, the match, the, the reigning cha heavyweight champion pulls himself together, and he comes sauntering up to the new victor, and he says, give me the prize money, but you can keep the belt. Excuse me? <laughs> This is a presumptuous and a rude statement. And that's the way the king of Sodom is treating Abraham. But Abraham, with incredible integrity, gives the king of Sodom back all the spoils of war, which the eastern kings had originally taken from Sodom and from the other kings in that area. Because Abraham didn't fight this war for profit. And he doesn't want anyone to get even the slightest idea that he's taken anything which belongs to anyone else. So he gives this countless wealth back to the king of Sodom. And, and Abraham returns after all that back to Hebron where he was staying with nothing except his integrity. Abraham has gained absolutely nothing materially from this whole risky venture. And Abraham has also gained some new and serious worries because He's just picked a fight with a mighty alliance of eastern kings and he's defeated them with a surprise attack. But the question is, are they just going to put their tails between their legs and limp back to their eastern kingdoms? Or are they going to regroup to reinforce themselves and to come looking for Abraham? How's that for a question to have rolling around in your mind as you sleep in your tent at night with the black darkness outside? So what do we learn from this story so far? Well, being a part of God's mission is not always easy going. 
Here God has promised Abraham all these blessings, and what does Abraham get for it? Well, he gets a famine. He gets his wife being kidnapped. He gets a fight with his nephew, which results in um, Lot's selfishly taking the best land away from him. And then he gets a dangerous hair-raising battle, putting himself and his family in danger to rescue said nephew from said nephew's foolish choices. But that's real life, isn't it? Economic problems, family problems, danger, worries about your family's safety. And where's God in all of it? The God who's promised to bless Abraham so much. Well, God has been there along the way. God saved Sarah from Pharaoh. God gave Abraham victory in that battle that he had to fight. And if you read this story, you'll see that God shows up a few other times along the way too to reiterate his promises to Abraham, to, to, uh, to lift up Abraham's chin, to, to encourage his faith along the way. You see, following God and engaging in God's mission is never easy street even when God is with you. It's all the regular stuff of life, plus it's some extra challenges that you face as a result of, of having integrity and, and being generous and putting God's concerns in front of your own. So why is it worth it? Well, in today's story, we find out. Let's look at the story we find in chapter 15. Abraham comes home from battle empty-handed. He's risked his neck for others. He's gained nothing for himself. He's vulnerable. He's likely afraid of a reprisal from these powerful eastern kings. And, and what happens in today's story? Well, God comes to him. God appears to him in a vision. And what does God say? God says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your protection, and your very great reward. You're vulnerable and you're afraid, but I am your shield. I am your protection. You gave up all that loot, but I am your very great reward. Is that the God you know? In his book, Abba's Child, Brendan Manning tells a story... Um, about a priest from Detroit named Edward Farrell. Um, Farrell once went on a two-week vacation to Ireland. Uh, his one living uncle lived there and was about to celebrate his 80th birthday. So Farrell went to be with him. Um, and on the special day of his birthday, um, uncle and nephew got up at the, the crack of dawn and they, they dressed in silence and they went for a walk on the shores of Lake Killarney. And um, they stopped to watch the sunrise. And so they were standing there side by side, not exchanging a word, just looking together at the beautiful sunrise. And then suddenly the 80-year uncle turned and went skipping down the road. He was radiant, he was beaming, he was smiling from ear to ear. And the nephew, the priest said, Uncle Seamus, you look really happy. I am lad. Want to tell me why? And his 80-year uncle replied, Yes, you see, Miaba is very fond of me. Miaba is very fond of me. That's someone who'd gotten to know the God who is our shield and our very great reward. 
We, we sing it in the chorus, Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds, and nothing I desire compares with you. We all know this to be true, at least intellectually, but do, do any of you, like me, not always feel this way? Do you ever... Um, is it true of you like it is of me that there are plenty of times that we don't feel like skipping down the road? Uh, <laughs> there are times when God doesn't seem big enough or willing enough or near enough or real enough to take care of the things that frighten us or worry us, right? I'm not the only less than super spiritual one here this morning. Um, there's times when God doesn't seem like he's going to fill the void or the ache or the emptiness that we feel. Well, I get comfort from Abraham at this point, because look at how Abraham answers God here. God has just reassured him, don't be afraid, I am your shield, I am your very great reward. And, and how does Abraham respond back to God? He complains. Can you believe it? He complains to God. Oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? In other words, God, those are nice words about being my very great reward and my shield, but, but you haven't gotten to square one yet, God. You keep promising to make me into a great nation and to give me this promised land for my offspring, but, but I ain't got no offspring. I ain't got no future. You've given me nothing. You've given me nothing. All you've given me is trouble. Where are your promises? Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt like, like God has let you down? Like he'd promised you some things and, and you'd, you'd hoped and you'd waited and you'd waited and, and, and God never delivered and, and, and waiting made your heart sick. And eventually, it just hurt too much to keep hoping, and so you sort of gave up. Did you complain out loud to God? You know, it's okay to complain to God. Abraham stands in a long line of biblical complainers. Now, there are two kinds of complaining. There's the grumbling kind, which um, never really trusted God very much in the first place. And every time a little problem happens, it's another excuse to grumble at God. See, God, I knew you weren't really good. I knew you wouldn't take care of me. But there's another kind of complaining which actually flows out of a strong trust in God, a desperate trust in God. And, and these kinds of people complain to God because they expect a lot from God. They take God at his word and they fully expect God to keep every one of his promises. And when God doesn't, they complain. God, where are you? Where are your promises? Why are you taking so long? So how do we know for sure if we're complaining this way and not in the grumbling way? Well, the Psalms teach us. There are a lot of complaining Psalms, right? We call them the lament psalms. And, and they give us God-approved words for complaining. To teach us to complain properly. 
They, they teach us to trust God, to, to expect more from God, not less. And, and they give us permission to complain when God takes so long to come through. Well, Abraham, the, the great man of faith, complains to God. And God doesn't get angry. God doesn't scold Abraham. Instead, God responds to Abraham's complaint with grace and with concern. God knows that Abraham trusts him, even if it's a faltering, weary trust. Abraham's faith is growing, but he's not totally mature yet. And, and God wants to help Abraham's faith to mature. And, and so God comes to Abraham and he gives him another gracious promise to bolster Abraham's faith. God promises Abraham that he won't need to adopt anyone else to be his legal heir, to inherit his estate. No, Abraham will have the desires of his heart. He'll have a flesh and blood son as his heir. Then God takes Abraham outside and he invites him to count the stars. And God promises that that Abraham's own flesh and blood descendants will be like those stars. So here's childless old Abraham. He's uh, been childless his whole adult life. That's all he's known. He's probably at least 80 by this point. His wife, Sarah, is um, about 70. She's probably past menopause. They're an old couple. And, and God takes Abraham out under the, the, the night sky on a, on a clear desert night and says, Abraham, your descendants will be like the stars that you see before you. Like the stars of the Milky Way. Should we wait for the fire to be put out? <laughs> All right. So there's Abraham standing under the night sky. And, and words to describe this, this promise from God elude me. Amazing. Incredible. Unbelievable. Astounding. Recklessly lavish. Impossible. Overwhelming. I guess a picture is worth a thousand words. Look at the stars, Abraham. Look at the stars. God couldn't possibly have given Abraham a more impossible or unbelievable promise. He might as well have told Abraham he would fly to the moon. It was like promising a five foot, three inch, skinny 18 year old that he was going to be a starting linebacker in the NFL. Or promising a homely girl who'd never had a date in her whole life that she would marry Prince Charming. Or promising a kid paralyzed from birth that she would one day climb Mount Everest. God couldn't possibly have given more grace to Abraham. He couldn't have promised Abraham a better gift. Can, can you picture old Abraham standing there with, with gaping jaw, just, just staring up at the vastness of the, of the stars. And, and, and for lack of any fitting response, because words just don't do justice, can you imagine Abraham just breaking into laughter and, and God laughing along with him? At the sheer craziness, the, the impossibility of the thought. That's God's passion. That's God's heart to do something 
that big for Abraham and for the whole world. So what does that mean for us? When we look at the night sky, star-studded, vast and full of tiny lights, what message is God saying to us? Well, at least three things, I think. First, that God's grace is abundant and lavish. God doesn't do things half-heartedly. And when God decides to save us from our sins, when God decides to draw us close and to love us and to enter into a relationship with us, God does it big. God does it lavishly. Not because we deserve to have it that way, but, but, but simply because that's what God is like. That's God's heart. So next time you're out under the, the starry night sky, remember the words of the late songwriter Rich Mullins in his song, Sometimes by Step. And when I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. That's good theology. As uh, Galatians 3, 7 puts it, understand then that those who believe in Christ are children of Abraham. One of those stars which Abraham saw and which we see as we look up at the, the uh, vast majestic night sky really was lit for you if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Then you have a place in God's vast expanse of grace. Second, the stars are a message to us that God is the God of the impossible. The God who has the power to form stars and galaxies and to set them all in place and, and to count them all and to give each one of them a name. That's the God that we're dealing with. Nothing is impossible. No purpose no promise. Third, the stars are a message of how big God's passion is for the world. How many people does God want to reach out to with his love? How many people is God's heart passionately seeking to bring to himself? How big is this whole salvation project that God has embarked on? Well, you want to know how big? Go out and look at the stars and count them if you can. God isn't a miser. God doesn't do things half-heartedly. God has big dreams and lavish plans. He's the God who would take an old childless man and, and make him the father of countless multitudes. Will you let yourself get, get caught up in a passion that big, like Abraham did? Remember, Abraham wasn't just called to be blessed. He was also called to be a blessing. And the same is true of each of us when God brings us to himself. We're all invited and called to, to dream big dreams, to be part of God's big purposes. I've, 
I've told you before, when I was in college, our, our Christian group there on campus's staff worker used to challenge us as we would make plans for the next year. He'd, he'd warn us against making plans which were manageable enough that we could conceivably accomplish them through our own abilities and resources. Because why did we need God if that was the case? And, and how would God get any glory out of the situation? And I think our current vision as a church of reaching the next generation is, is a good step in that big direction, that we're, that we're being stretched beyond our abilities. And, and I think we'll continue to be stretched even more to, uh, to trust in, in what God can do and, and to gain God's big heart for the world. When I was a missionary in Hungary, um, I got to know a missions group that was seeking and training and resourcing people that they called John Knoxers. John Knoxers. John Knox, if you don't know, was a, a famous Scottish preacher. And um, one thing he was known for was regularly being down on his knees, agonizing in prayer, saying only one thing to God. God, give me Scotland or I die. God, give me Scotland or I die. John Knox knew how big God's passion is. And he got infected by that passion. And, and this missions organization was looking for men and women like that in Central and Eastern Europe to resource. So the next time you look up at the stars, ask God, God, how big are the things that you want me to trust you for? How big do you want to grow my passion? And then looking at the stars, when you have your answer, Trust God wherever he leads you. And don't worry if you don't have the ability to do it because it was never about your ability in the first place. Well, our passage ends this morning by highlighting just how much God thinks of it when we do trust him like that. In verse 6, we read that under the starry sky that night, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham believed the Lord. And God thought so much of Abraham's trust, Abraham's belief in God's impossible promise that God chose to look everything else, overlook, God chose to overlook everything else that Abraham had done, good or bad, and to treat Abraham as if he'd only done good, totally and completely. God thought so much of Abraham's belief. That's what God thinks of faith. God wants to be trusted. God loves to be trusted. And so we proceed by faith, not having all the answers, not having enough resources, but having a great God with a great passion for the world. A passion that that he's invited us to fulfill with him. Will you join him? Will we join him? Let's pray. God, we uh, pray with the words of Rich Mullins. There's a wideness in your mercy that I can't find in my own. 
and you keep your fire burning to melt this heart of stone. And God, we ask that you would melt our hearts, that you would fire our imaginations, and that your big story would give into our bones and shape who we are, and um, that you'd help us to raise our sights above our small problems and our small hopes, and that we would dare to get caught up and trust you um, for your big passions. And God, some of us have tried that before, and we've been disappointed. We've, we've run out of patience. And help us to complain to you and, and bring us back to a place of trusting you. Sometimes these things take time, and you work slowly. Help us to hang in there. Relight our fires that we once had. Renew our passions. And uh, for each one of us, I pray that you'd be lighting a fire um, that together would be a blessing to Westchester and Putnam counties and beyond that to this nation and to the whole world. In Jesus' name, amen.